Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. But as we've been in this series on leadership called Everyone Has Influence, really we've talked about leadership really being something where you have influence on other people more than anything else. Leadership is about influence, but it's also about taking a risk. It's also about doing something that requires faith, and because if I'm going to influence people, there's going to be times when, when that influence and that, that risk that I'm taking might involve danger to my own life. It might involve rejection. It might involve failure. It might involve misunderstanding, and so how do I do that, and how do I have the courage to be able to do that. So as we're looking at this series on Everyone Has Influence, the, pro, the character we want to profile today is a woman whose name is Abigail. And so if you have a Bible, turn me to 1 Samuel chapter 25. This is a fantastic story. Many of you have never heard it before, but it is absolutely vital to not only understanding, you know, the, God's, the way God works through people, but also his plan in, in, and how the vital role that, that you can play in God's unfolding plan. This woman never thought she would ever play the role that she played um, in, her, in, this, in God's total unfolding plan of redeeming people. But through this little episode we're going to hear about, it's going to be pretty awesome. So remember that leadership is about influence, not about position, not about title, not about power. It's about the ability to change the way a person thinks, change the way that a person understands a situation, change their behavior. So by what you say and what you do, you, are, you, want, you want to be someone who can have an effect on the people around you right where you are. You don't need to wait until you have power and position. It's not necessary. And so we're going to look at this story in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And what's happening now, just to give you the whole story, really starts with, with David. And this is David, the same David of David and Goliath, but it's before he becomes King David. So it's between David and Goliath and, and King David, right? And it's really at a time when it's probably one of the most stressful times of his whole life because he's on the run from King Saul. So King David of Israel, before he becomes King David of Israel, is on the run from King Saul of Israel. And what's happened is when David kills Goliath, he becomes like the rock star of the whole, the whole country, the whole nation of Israel. Everybody thinks he's great. The, the young ladies are singing songs about him in the streets. I mean, he's like number one, right? And like all the teen magazines, he's on the cover and everything else. So he's a really awesome guy. Well, this obviously makes the current king very jealous, and he's upset because he sees, the, he sees young David's faith, and he sees God's hand on him, and so he sets out to kill him, and he directs all of his military resources, all of his energy to try to take out this young guy. So David's on the run with about 600 of, of these other guys, and it's really fascinating because he basically pulls together this ragtag rebel army, basically, for lack of a better phrase, who really were comprised of people who were kind of on the outskirts of society. They were the misfits. They were the people that didn't fit in. They were the people that, that they, they, they owed money. Um, they probably had some brushes with the law. They were just, they weren't necessarily um, the center focus of society. These guys were kind of on the outskirts, but they believed in David, and they looked to David for hope. And so about 600 of these guys are on the run, and you got to remember, there's all these tribes and bands and other factions that are all over the area of the Middle East, and they're always fighting each other. They're always vying for power, and it is a constant and continuous, extremely dangerous situation. And if you've been in these situations before, like where 
you know, you're, you're maybe always feeling like you're, you're not safe or, or maybe you've just gone through a period of time where you're just so emotionally frazzled. And you know that feeling where you just need to catch a break because you just feel like your nerves are on edge and, and, and you just haven't had any, you can't remember the last time you had peace, the last time you had rest, the last time you could just kind of, you know, stop for a minute and just breathe. David has not had an experience like this in a long time. In fact, several chapters before the chapter we're going to get into, he runs to an area called Gath. And in this little area of Gath, he kind of tries to hide out there. Well, it's come to find out some of the villagers and servants in the villages and the village there realize that this could be the, the same David who, uh, who actually um, uh, killed Goliath, and now he's this guy that's got all this fame. And so now they report this to the king. Now this king's threatened by David, so now David feels threatened, and he's freaking out because he's thinking, man, I'm in this, I'm, play, I'm hiding out here. I'm going to get killed. So his tactic to convince them that he wasn't the David of these legendary stories is he literally pretends to be insane. And he, he actually, um, it's kind of funny what the Bible says, because he made markings on the wall. In other words, he basically graffitied on public property. He went out and graffitied, made weird markings on the wall, and then he, um, he defiled his beard, which is really funny. So those of you like, you know, like you hipsters, and those of you guys have big old long beards, and like you guys know, like your beard is everything, man. You don't let things get in there, and you comb it, and you keep it all nice. Well, back in, the, in that time period, a man's beard was everything. And you know, he was always like making sure it looked great. And the Bible says that David let drool go down his beard because he was trying so hard to convince everyone around him that he wasn't who they thought he was, that he was insane, that he was graffitiing everywhere and drooling all over himself just to stay alive. And finally, they're like, this guy is nuts. He's crazy. And the king's like, get this guy out of here. I don't know what his problem is. And so they booted him out rather than killing him. So this is, these are the kinds of episodes and brushes with death that David is having on a regular and continuous basis while he's running for, uh, for his life from King Saul, who's been pursuing him all along. And finally, the Bible says that as he's going along with his guys, he finally thinks he catches a break. And he gets to a place called the Wilderness of Paran. And there they find, he finds um, a bunch of guys that are, are basically shearing sheep. And they're in an area that is run by a guy named Nabal. Now, the only thing you have to know about Nabal right now is his name in Hebrew literally means fool or idiot <laughs> or stupid. And as we'll see, he lives very well up to his name. So he's, so he's uh, this is the guy that kind of runs this whole sheep shearing operation. The Bible says he's extremely rich. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And you know, what's amazing to me, guy coming from the city, I'm an LA guy, and moving here out to the West Valley, you know, you don't really think about it, but, but maybe, maybe some of you guys are involved in this, but some of these farms out here and these ranches are incredibly huge. And the people that own these things are undoubtedly extremely, wealthy. We were coming back from Parker, my family and I, we went up to the Colorado River to hang out with some friends of ours, and we went, we went out paddle boarding and stuff, and we took kind of the side roads back, and we came upon this one ranch that was just, it was, I mean, it, it seemed like it took forever to drive past this thing. It was so big that the next day I was on an airplane, and I could look down and see this thing from the air, and I'm like, this thing is massive, and I just kept, kept thinking, I wonder who owns this gigantic farm, dairy farm ranch thing. It was just huge. Huge. And, the, and so you get an idea that this guy, Nabal, even though his name means fool, is an extremely wealthy guy. 
But here's the thing. David has history with this guy because it wasn't too long ago that David's men had protected Nabal's servants and, and uh, shepherds from attacks from other guys. They kind of stood there. In fact, the shepherds said that, they had, that David's men had made a wall for them so they didn't get any of their sheep or cattle stolen. They didn't have any harm come to them. And what David's men did for him in the not so recent past or not too distant past was a very wonderful and good and, and awesome thing that they did. And so when you do something like that for another group in that culture especially, it would be expected that these guys would return the favor in some way or another. So when you combine that with the Middle Eastern understanding of hospitality, now David comes upon this guy, Nabal, and his big giant ranch, and he's, he's saying, this is awesome because I, we did this guy a favor, we can rest here, he's super rich, he can give us some of his provisions, and you know, hospita- from a hospitality standpoint, he, Nabal was absolutely indebted and absolutely required culturally to take care of David and his men and give them some kind of um, you know, safety for the period of time. And so what he basically does is he grabs 10 of his, you know, kind of young um, strapping dudes and he's like, hey, I want you guys to go over to Nabal, talk to his guys, and I want you to basically tell him this. And this is what it says in verse 6. Go up to him and say, peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, this is what you would do if you were polite and genuine, and you were basically, this is customary cultural thing, almost making like a treaty, like, hey, I just want to say, you know, blessings to you, and here's our situation, and we're making a formal request that you would take us in. And it was very much expected that a normal guy would go, yeah, yeah, awesome, come on in, this is great. So you can imagine the, the frustration that David had when he sees his 10 guys coming in the distance and their shoulders are kind of hunched over and they're like, you know, like this. And, and David sees these guys and they come out. He's like, man, guys, what, what happened? Did you, did you talk to Nabal? And they're like, yeah, we talked to Nabal. Well, what did he say? Well, you're not going to like this. It's basically what happened is that we told him the whole thing that you told us to say. And we told him who you were, and basically his response was like, hmm, David, 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 hmm. You know, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of a guy named David. I, it doesn't ring a bell. I'm sorry. And in fact, you know, you got to you know, understand that we have all kinds of slaves who have bailed from their masters, and they love to come by here and beg for stuff. And you know, why should I give my sheep and uh, my grain and all my dates and my figs and my wine and all my stuff that I work hard for to give my own people, why should I give all that stuff to a bunch of like ruffian guys who, know, who knows where you guys came from? So, I'm sorry, just get out of here. He basically just told him to pound sand, right? And David hears this and goes absolutely ballistic. You gotta remember, this guy has been on the edge of death for who knows, months, and he's just barely, his emotions are frazzled, he's on edge, he's like, ugh, and he just goes 
off. First thing he does is he says 400 of his 600 guys, two-thirds of his men, put your swords on right now. We're going to go down there and we're going to slaughter every last one of these guys. He is so unbelievably angry. And you can understand when you just, when you think after all this time, you're finally going to catch a break. You're finally going to have something good happen. And then to get just the door slammed shut. And now it's just continuing on. He just absolutely lost it. In fact, the Bible said that this is the most, um, he's, he's going to go into the longest and most um, basically vicious tirade that the, the scripture ever recorded of him in terms of his words. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'll tell you, I can identify with that a little bit because I'm what you would call a verbal processor, you know? Like, when I get really upset, I just, I have to just say stuff. Like, I'm not one of these guys that holds in, like, you know, I just start, like, saying, and I have to watch because I can have a sharp tongue sometimes, and I've learned, you know. So, so I, I kind of, and I could kind of even relate to a little bit of this because I didn't have the, um, I mean, I had a good week, but, but I had kind of a, a challenging week with some things. So I spent the week in Austin, Texas at our, our, um, our denominational, our church's denominational conference, and it was great, lots of fun. But what I wanted to do is I was like, I'm going to save our, you know, save our denomination some money, and I'm doing some work with them and stuff, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like live on the cheap. I'm going to try to get the, the cheapest car that I can, and I'm going to stay in this, you know, and I, I don't care, you know, because a lot of times like, I end up with like kind of cool cars because I wheel and deal with them, and I'm like, ah, I mean, who cares? So I went on this one car company, and I, I, I picked the, um, the wild card option, which is you pay a really low price, and they pick the car. And I thought, well, how bad can it be, Right? Because, I mean, yeah, I thought we'll get one of those little, like, Chevy little spark things or some, you know, like a Fiat or something. There's no problem. You a little car. I don't mind. I don't mind. I can drive. Well, I show up, and no kidding, the guy's like, all right, Mr. Jacobs, here's your keys. Um, you're getting a smart car. <laughs> now, you have to understand something about a smart car, okay? It's not really a car, <laughs> okay? It's like, it's like a roller skate. It's like a... It's, it's like a little, it's like they took the, 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 the front end off of a real car and the back end off of a real car and then smashed it. And then like, here. And I go, are you, are, I go, what? A, a, a smart car? He goes, yeah. I go, are you serious? And then, and then he's like, well, um, I said, well, are there any upgrades available? He goes, no, it's the only thing we have left. It's the only car we have left. And I go, I said, and I'm, I said, look, man. I just got to ask you, I said, this is Texas. Am I going to get beat up for driving a smart car? And he goes, no, man, it's Austin. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it was really funny. So I get in this car, and man, I, I, I just, I hate this car. I mean, I'm so, if you have one, I'm sorry. I don't mean to insult you, but I mean, it's got no acceleration. It's got no, it's got no, I mean, I, I mean, like, I tell my wife, I go, I feel unsafe. Like, like you know, do we have the will worked out? Because I'm going to get killed in this car. I mean, it's, it's, and I, I, I'm just gonna, can I just be a, like real honest pastor moment? The three words I said, I should have, the three words I said this, the, this week more than any other phrase, I should have, it should have been to my wife, I love you, or to God, I love you. The three words I said more than any time this, more than anything else this week was, this car sucks. <laughs> All right? I'm just like, I hate this car. Okay, so here I am, and, and I'm, okay, and I'm, okay, I'm finally dealing with it. Well, then I also, earlier this week, I went out and bought this pair of um, 
white shorts. And um, if you follow me on Facebook, you know what happened. So I bought this pair of white shorts, and I'm getting up in the morning. And I'm, I'm cool with the car now. It's like I made peace with it. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that far from the hotel to the place where the meeting was at. And, and I stopped for coffee on the way, and I got this brand new pair of white shorts. I ironed them, and I had this shirt, this other shirt, and I'm, I'm looking good, you know? Like, I got the white shorts and uh, my, my shirt that I was wearing. I just felt good, you know what I mean? Like, it's okay about the car, because I'm, I'm compensating, because I feel good about it myself. And, and so I'm at Starbucks typing on some stuff, and I'm like, okay, I gotta go. And, and uh, you know, and there was this gal, she was coming out, and I opened the door for her, and I'm like, man, I'm just, you know, I'm great. And right as I'm walking out, this dude's like, comes up, he goes, excuse me. I said, yeah, he said, um, I, I can't help but notice, but yeah, it looks like you, you sat on some serious bad stuff, man. Like you, you sat on some food or something, man. And it's, it's kind of, oh my gosh. And I said, it's not good, is it? He goes, nah, it's not good. <laughs> so I'm not kidding, okay? Here I am. So like the low point of my week, if you could see me, like walking across the parking lot in brand new white shorts with this big giant brown stain in the back to my smart car. I'm like, God, what is happening to my life? What did I do, you know? And I'm like, oh, this car sucks, and like, you know? I'm like, why, <laughs> right? Have you ever been there, you know? And it's just like, what's going on here? Like, I, was, I, was, I had such good intentions, and so it's like, so David is like verbalizing all of this like, and it's so funny when you read it because he's going, basically he's like saying, you know, I, he's like, I hate this guy. He doesn't even refer to his neighbor. He's like, this fellow, like this jerk, this idiot. He goes, here I do all this stuff for him and he doesn't do anything for me and here I, I should never, what a waste of time. I should never have helped him. Why is this happening? You know, and he's like, you know, doing the whole mic drop thing and mic dropping over here. He's like do one-liners and all his guys are standing there like, dude, he is seriously upset and he's just going off and screaming and yelling and the whole thing and all of a sudden while all this is happening, up comes this big giant herd of donkeys and all of these herd of donkeys have strapped to them 200 um, loaves of bread, massive amounts, literally the equivalent of five sheep that have basically been butchered. So like all of this meat, all of this wine, these like 200 of these um, fig cakes and all of this stuff and you know, in and out and all everything. And, and it's just this long herd of donkeys pull up and he's looking, it's like, what in the world? And then slipping in the middle of all this, this is this incredibly beautiful woman hops off the donkey, runs up to him, and falls down at his feet with her face to the ground, and she is trembling. And he's like, what's this? What's going on? And right in this moment, everything is about to change. Because the woman who's laying down at his feet is none other than Nabal's wife, whose name is Abigail. And she's about to change the game entirely. Because there's just about to be a slaughter. There's just about to be serious blood. There's about to be a massive tribal war. And here she is, falling at his feet. And everything changes in verse 24 when she says this. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please, right? I know you're mad. 
Let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Right? Do not pay attention. His, even his name means idiot, okay? You know he's an idiot. I know he's an idiot. We've established that. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. And all of a sudden, David realizes in the midst of his tirade, in the midst of his anger, that he has been met by a woman who is a leader. And a leader can change everything. You see, she basically becomes the exact opposite of her husband, and she stops him dead in his tracks. The rant, the anger, the, this whole situation is just terrible. All of that stops. And why does it stop? It stops for a few reasons. First of all, because Abigail did something that every great leader does. She took ownership. She took ownership. She assumed responsibility. And out of her story, there's several things that we continue on that you can get that great leaders do. And you better catch this if you ever even think about aspiring to be one right where you are. The first thing that great leaders do is great leaders take ownership. Just like Joseph last week took responsibility for a problem he didn't create, she takes responsibility for something that technically isn't her fault. She should have been protected by her husband. Her husband should have welcomed these guys in. Her husband broke every cultural rule in the book. And by the way, right now, you know where he is? He's off at a party somewhere. He is drunk. He's wasted. He didn't even know what's going on. He had no idea she was doing this. And she takes responsibility. And when he sees her take responsibility, he is shocked. When he sees the ownership she is willing to take, because she basically says this, you know what? You know he's an idiot. He's a fool. I know he's a fool. Can we just establish that? If you're going to blame someone, blame me. Okay? Because I should have known he does this kind of stuff, and I should have been more attentive to your servants who came. They didn't do anything wrong. I should have been more attentive to them. So if you're looking for someone to blame, blame me. And this just rocks him. And the reason why it rocks him is the reason why this kind of thing rocks all of us, because we never see this happen. You don't see this in the workplace. You don't see this in the media. You certainly don't see it in politics, right? You don't see this kind of thing. You don't see people stand up and say, guys, I don't know how else to tell you, this one's on me. I will take the responsibility for this. I will step in and be the one to take the blame. Now, please understand by way of disclaimer, this does not mean, ladies, that if you're in an abusive relationship that you're to cover that up and try to make excuses for your husband. That's not the point of this passage. So if that's you, do not read this as God telling you to take responsibility for your husband's abuse. Just have to get that out of the way because people see things through the eyes of which the situations that they're in. That's not the point of this. The point of this is this is a life or death situation and she realizes that if she doesn't do something, everybody's going to die. 
And even though she's not at fault, she has to step in and take ownership. And here's the thing. Leaders don't run from responsibility. And when you take responsibility, it has an incredible way of disarming people. Right? It has an incredible way of disarming people. Because people go, wow, really? And, and it, it could just, it stops them. So even me, last week, I'm, dry, I'm bringing my little smart car back to the rental car place. You know, and I pull it into a little airport, you know, and they're like, oh, Mr. Jacobs, how was your experience? <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. This is the worst car I've ever driven in my life. It, I'm just, I'm not mad, I mean, you know, I'm not, I said, I know you didn't pick it, you just work here, right? I'm just telling you, this is the worst car I've ever driven in my life. You guys should not be renting, you should, you should not be renting these cars out to the general public, you know? And these are horrible, right? And the guy's like, so, and, and I'm not, I'm not ranting, but I'm kind of being kind of half funny and half like, yeah, I'm not, you're not going to hear this every day, but I hate this car. And, and I, you know, and I just, I felt like the guy needs, somebody needs to know that, you know, Mr. Jacobs, almost got plowed by like 55 semis and like sent his last breath in some, you know, Highway 71 in Austin or whatever it's called, right? And so I'm like, whatever. And the guy goes, oh, I'm very sorry to hear that. He says, you know, I agree with you. We shouldn't even have these cars in the fleet. He's like, I can't wait till we get rid of them. They're, they're, They're no good at all. I'm like, yeah. You're, that's right, man. That's right. And he's like, you know what, Mr. Jacobs? Is, I, I'm sorry that happened. You tell you what, next time you're in Austin, are you come back anytime soon? I'm like, well, I don't know. And he said, well, I'll tell you, next time you come in town, will you come talk to me? I will make sure that we take care of you. Okay? I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. And then I'm like, well, you know, I mean, truthfully, I mean, I, I get it, man. It's, you know, I mean, I did pick the, the wild card car, you know, and it's definitely a wild card. And to be honest with you, the turning radius was actually pretty good on it. It kind of turned on a dime because it's about the size of a dime. So, yeah, we're good, man. We're good, you know, right? How to do that? Like that? I don't know. I don't know how to do it. So, but like all of a sudden, hey, we're cool, man. We're, it's okay. Why? Because the dude at the rental car place was like, well, pff, you're an idiot forever trying to get the little low price. He's like, no, I'm sorry, man. Like he took, you know, he, and it, and it, I don't know. But what was I supposed to do? Keep yelling at him? I mean, I'm not going to. So that's the point. He took ownership, disarmed me. I was like, cool. Okay. But that's what happens when you take ownership of something. You, it has an incredible way of doing that because people don't see that. Let me ask you this, in your work or in the relationship you have at home, do, are you one of these knee-jerk reaction people that just goes, it was not my fault. So I, don't blame me, it wasn't me, man. That's, that's, that's their problem. Is that just part of your vocabulary as a knee-jerk? If it is, you're not a leader. Leaders don't do that. You know, it's funny because we get on our kids about this and they're getting better as they're getting older, but when they were little, you call them out on something, and it's just like, it's just, they don't even let it c- come into their consciousness. It's just the automatic three words, yeah, but you, dot, 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 yeah, but you, right? So it just, they just have this incredible way of firing it right back at you. And there are adults like that, that they just, it's like they can't, it's like they have this mental block. They can't stop and, and do what Abigail did. And what Abigail did that was so genius was she's like, she, she got inside David's head and she's like, yes, I know you have a legitimate beef with us. You are legitimately angry. I understand that. 
And maybe if one person understands that and tries to do something to fix it, even the provisions themselves were not enough for the 600, but they were something. And she knew if I can just bring something, I can disarm him and say, if you're gonna throw your anger at somebody, throw it at me. That maybe, just maybe, I can have influence. Maybe, just maybe, I can affect the outcome. And I'm telling you guys, in your place of business, in your work, in your family, in your home, in your relationships, when you become someone who isn't so obsessed with self-protection, it's amazing what God can do through you. It's amazing how God can build bridges between you and the person that you thought you'd never have connection with. So the second thing that she does out of this, which is really amazing if you look at the text, which is really the second thing that great leaders do, which is they become servants. Do you know how many times she says, she says, I am your servant. She says, listen to what your servant is telling you. In fact, um, and by the way, when she does this, she's not being subservient to him. She's leading him by placing herself in place of a servant. She's, she is... She's running this conversation. She's running the whole thing, but how is she doing it? Through deference and saying, let me serve you. And through that, she's leading. And I'm sorry, but part of my doctoral work um, was in leadership and specifically in ministry leadership. Uh, a lot of my um, work in the Air Force that I've been doing in terms of training, and, and if you guys have been involved in that kind of stuff, you know what I'm talking about, is all in leadership. And, and everybody's saying the same thing. Everybody's saying the same thing. That leadership by title and position, it just doesn't really, at the end of the day, it just doesn't really matter. That people will follow you if they know you're willing to go the distance with them. People will follow you in their heart if they know that, you're, that you serve them, that you love them, that you're willing to give up everything for them. That's when they'll follow you. They're not impressed by your degrees. That's why I, that's why for me, you know, and people, I got a doctorate back in 2011. I don't, hi, I'm Dr. Jacobs. Because you all made fun of me for it anyway. You're like, hey, my shoulder hurts. <laughs> nobody cared. You know, I mean, they're like, oh, that's nice. But nobody cares about your title. They don't care about your rank. They don't care. What they care about is your ability to serve. So last week I told you I was at this denominational conference and it was so cool because um, the president of our denomination, a lot of times when you think of pre- denominational presidents, you think of guys that are like 112 and old and crusty, you know? Like they don't laugh about anything. They're like, Ugh, you know, and like they died five years ago and no one told them. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Just like, you know, like you wouldn't think like, hey, let's go have lunch with a denominational president. That sounds like fun. But, th- but our guy is super cool. And, and it was pointed out at one of our meetings by a guy up there. He says, you know, he says, you guys, I don't know if you guys saw this, but, but Kevin... I saw him out in the lobby area and he was down on his hands and knees and he was cleaning up coffee that had spilled on the ground. And it wasn't his. Somebody, it was just a coffee spill that happened. And he didn't, he didn't do it, but he, he just was down and he was, he's the president of the nominee. He could have said, hey, where's the janitor? Some good janitor, the whatever, clean that thing up. Or hey, you, why don't you go clean that up? He didn't do that. He was down on his knees himself doing it. And I spoke to this guy who told everybody else about it. And that's what service does. So if you want to lead, and by the way, you know, we have this crazy thing in culture. We think that people arrive at certain status levels in culture. And yet some of the most amazing people I know started at the very bottom. And how did they get to the top? Because they were the ones willing to do what no one else was willing to do. 
They were the ones willing to stay later and work harder. They were the ones willing to not go around and say, look what I did. But they just, they became credible because they were willing to serve the people around them. And everybody said, that's the guy that I want leading me. So, speaking of talking, speaking of ranting, she has a pretty good way of talking herself. In fact, in the longest recorded speech of any woman in the Bible, we're only going to read a portion of it, she continues on, and this is what she says. She's talking to him, and she's trying to reason with him, and this is really cool because she says, for the Lord, this is lengthy, but it's really good. She says, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, speaking of David, calling him her Lord, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so as long as you live. By the way, that's a very interesting thing. Is, is she being prophetic, or is she being kind of prescriptive, like, I don't want to see evil. I don't want you to do this evil. It's really interesting the way the language is. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. It was an incredibly courageous thing for a woman in that culture to say to a man and to say to a man of David's stature and power. But what is she doing? She's getting inside his head. She's saying, listen, I know who you are. God has called you. You're, you're going to be a great man. You're going to be the prince over the whole country of Israel. I know it. I see God's hand on you in your life. Don't risk it all. Don't waste it all on this idiot husband of mine. It's not worth it. You have bigger fish to fry in your life. You're going places further. Don't spend the rest of your life because you know you violated God's law right now and took, and took matters into your own hands and shed blood that you should not have shed. Don't do this and have this on your conscience for the rest of your life and let it tinge and taint your legacy. That's good. That's really good. And what she did is the third thing that great leaders do. Great leaders frame the issue. They know how to frame the issue. Meaning great leaders help people see what is important at any given moment. And your ability, and this is where, this is where your time with God and your reflection and your wisdom and your ability to grow in this area is so important because the people God brings around you at the right time and the right moments, you're able to help them see things from the right perspective. Now, photographers, those of you that are photographers, my father is an amazing photographer, and I just don't have that gift. And I take pictures and they just look stupid, but he's got a way of taking, like, he and I could take a picture of the same thing and his would be awesome and mine would be horrible because he knows how to set it in the right way. And there's an object of the, in the picture and he knows how, to, how big to make that object. He knows the colors and he knows the exposure and all that stuff to be able to bring out of that what he wants them to see. One of the ways to do that is to learn how to ask really good questions. A guy named Bob Beal has this great thing and I've been a, a kind of student of a, um, uh, from afar of a lot of his stuff when he talks about how to ask great questions. He said, if you ask great questions, you get great answers. If you ask bad questions, you get bad answers. If you ask no questions, you get no answers at all. And so he's become an expert at asking probing questions. So one question you might ask yourself might be, what, you might, what might be this, in a year from now, what will I be glad that I would have done today? 
When I look back in a year from now, what will I have been glad that I did today? So when you start thinking about priorities and what you should be spending your time doing and, and how you should be budgeting or whatever else, when you, if you were to look, go forward one year and think, what will I be glad that I did now? That's a really good question to ask yourself. When you're in a relationship with somebody in a marriage or a dating relationship, one, a great question to ask your spouse, especially if you're having some rough times, is, hey, listen, when our marriage is going well, when you feel like our marriage is going well, what kinds of things are happening? What's going on? during the times when you feel like it's going well? That's a great question to ask. And what are you doing? You're getting inside the other person's head and you're, and you're, and you're allowing them to, th- you're, you're helping them think and you're helping them and you're trying to get ways to frame issues and understand things better. And when you do that, you're having an influence right where you are. You gotta do this with your kids, you do this with your coworkers, you do this with friends, you can do it with your boss. To ask great questions of the people that you even work for in those certain situations when God opens those doors and to be able to speak in and set that and that's exactly what she did. So David hears this and he sees this effort that she's made with bringing all this stuff and the attitude that she has and the wisdom and the courage and all that she is and he's, he's literally blown away. All of this rant and anger, everything just evaporates and this is what he says in verse 33. He says, blessed be your discretion, meaning your judgment, your wisdom, your sensibility and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. He literally quotes what she just said. What she said, she said, don't do this with your own hand. Don't work out salvation with your own hand. And he goes, thank you for stopping me from working out salvation with my, for taking matters into my own hands. Basically, he says, you just saved the day. You just saved the day. The, the war's off. <laughs> the attack, sorry guys. You know, and these guys are ready to go, man. They're like, yeah, and then, nope, sorry, ain't gonna happen. The rest of the story is kind of interesting, actually. Um, because what ends up happening is she goes back to Nabal, who finally sobered up, and she says to him, she says, you know, I did it again. I saved your butt. David was gonna kill you and everybody else. And I, I went, this is what I did, and, and you came this close to getting slaughtered. And this freaks him out so much, the Bible says he has a stroke, basically a stroke, and 10 days later, he dies. Now, this is where it gets a little bit kind of weird and culturally kind of, you know, hard to un- for us to really kind of wrap our minds around this, but, but David, in a sense, gets word that Nabal died, and he's like, this is really cool because now here's this very sensible, intelligent, and wonderful, and beautiful, now single woman. Um, and so he's like, hey. Um, so he gets her a little Snapchat or whatever, and they start going back and forth. And um, the challenge is he basically picks up his, technically now his third wife, although one of them, of the other two, had bailed at that point. So he's kind of doing some of that stuff, which isn't necessarily a good recommendation, guys. But the crazy part about it, if you can understand culturally and wrap your arms around this, it actually served to actually expand his influence because all those assets now become part of his kind of uh, growing level of uh, influence around the area and is what kind of sets him up to become king later on. Again, God works in culture. doesn't prescribe that. He works despite people's kind of bad, poor decisions and cultural failures like that. But the point is, is that in the midst of all that, this woman's courage changed the game and prevented bloodshed. But here's the thing that's really important and I want you to miss more than anything else. You see, we talked about several things. We talked about leaders taking ownership. What are you taking ownership of in your life? Is there, is, are you someone who loves to say, it's not my problem, not my problem, and insulate yourself from everything around you 
And I'm not saying you meddle into other people's business because you've got to be wise, but I'm saying you know the situation. You let the Holy Spirit speak to you. This is where you have a relationship with God and say, God, in what areas should I begin to step into and grab and say, you know what, this is important. In what areas at work and everything else do I need to go, hey, let me, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. Let me, let me this, this is a hole here. Let me, let me figure out how to fix this. Take ownership. And you're framing the issue. You're growing in your wisdom. You're learning how to ask good questions. And finally, I kind of put, got them out of order, but you're serving. See, in an amazing way, leadership more than anything else has to be service as well. And God himself is the greatest leader in this capacity because the Bible says that he sent Jesus. And in a really interesting way, you can look at the story as a parallel to the story of Christ. See, the Bible says basically all of us are navels. All of us are idiots. Because God has come into us and said, hey, I've been looking out for you. I created you. I've been watching over you. I know you. Can I, will you invite me into your life? Can I have fellowship with you? And all of us have basically said, pound sand, God. I, I, I don't, God, hmm, I, I've never seen you before. Hmm, I don't really know you. Hmm, I, I, I can't ring a bell. All of us have done that. And God in his righteous anger towards sin says there's a price that needs to be paid. And along comes Jesus, who by the will of the Father says, I'll take that. Hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> they're a bunch of nables. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And when you come to see the love of Jesus, God sent his son to die for you. He's willing to do everything. That we're saved through the servant leadership. This is why Jesus says to us, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even I, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for ransom, as a ransom for many. If you're ever going to grow in your capacity to influence and lead, you got to first start with, what does it look like to serve? And what does it look like to know the great servant, the God of the universe, who stooped down and washed the feet of his disciples and gave his blood for them and for us. You got to contend with that. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're here today and you're saying, you know, that's the kind of God I want to live for. That's the kind of God I want to know. I want to challenge you just to take a moment and to surrender your life to the one who stepped in for you while we were still, while you were still sinning, while you were at your worst, while you were the navel of your life. He stepped in on your behalf, rescued you from yourself. Is it time for you today to surrender yourself to him? As we sang about earlier, as you've heard about, and say, man, God is good. It's because of the great servant that I have life. I challenge you today, turn your life over to him. Surrender yourself to him because he loves you. And he's not a demanding God. He's not an angry God. He's a God who's made it possible for you to be free from sin, free from guilt, free from shame. So just tell him that right now. 
And for the rest of us here, maybe it's time for you to take some risks. Maybe it's time for you to jump in and look around and see what opportunities God's given you. Maybe it's time to see yourself as someone sent by God. To look around and say, how can I begin to be someone that others depend on, others rely on? God, give me the strength to stay an hour longer. Give me the strength to bear the weight. Give me the strength to say, I got this. And in so doing, begin to have the influence and the ability to speak into situations and to bring life and redemption and freedom to the people in our community who desperately need it in the name of Jesus. And we thank you, God, that you give us stories like this are so packed full of truth. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.